Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. There's nothing that honors our loved ones, our lost loved ones, like our ability to move through these terrible times of grief and move on with with our lives. They would want that for us. That's the voice of Sue Deagle. She's the author of The Luminist. More about that in a few minutes. Sue's been through the worst of times lately, but has learned ways to be resilient and to find joy in life, which she shares with us as the guest on this episode of the Women in Leadership podcast. Sue talks about how she finds solace and comfort in nature since her husband died suddenly in his early 50s, leaving her with their two teenagers to raise. I think one of the big things that helped me about being in nature is is just that I could get out of my head and into observation mode. Look at the light coming through the trees. Oh, I want to touch that leaf. Oh, I'm, I'm going to hug that tree. That, that tree looks so good. So nature was really the first gateway to me, to my healing. Sue is an expert in resilience, surviving and thriving despite the odds and what life throws at you. In this episode of the podcast, she says one thing we can all do to prepare for when the inevitable losses happen is to build self-reflection into our lives. We want to believe that loss happens to somebody else. We want to believe that the tough times happen to somebody else. And so when they happen to us, we're so we're so shocked. Wait a second. You know, no, I, I you know, loss happens to other people, death, loss of jobs, divorces, etc. No, these things happen. And the more we acknowledge that, the more we're constantly building a position of self-reflection and of strength and community for when those times come, not if. Sue Deagle holds down a full-time, high-powered job in the United States and is a contributor to the Wall Street Journal. She's been finding different ways to cope and build resilience in herself and in her children since the loss of her husband. And one of them is publishing an inspirational newsletter, The Luminist. It's an uplifting conversation. I think you'll enjoy. So thank you so much for joining me, Sue Deagle. And you are the author of The Luminist newsletter. What is that? So The Luminist is a a newsletter on Substack published every Saturday that I actually started almost one year ago on the sixth anniversary of my husband's death. Because what I have learned from his sudden and unexpected passing is the vibrant aliveness and the electricity running through all of life. And I couldn't keep that under a bushel. I wanted to share with people how you can live your life after loss. So essentially what the luminous is about is is the human condition and all those ways that we think loss makes our lives smaller, but it actually can make our lives bigger. That must have been a very tough loss because you're still a young woman. Yeah, very tough. He was 50 years old. I was 48 at the time and the kids were 11 and 13. So uh, it was sort of a disappearance. He was a healthy, vibrant, spectacular human being. And and uh, one one night he had a cardiac arrest and he was gone. So adjusting to like a complete 
um, unknown and unknown future. In addition to like losing the person that you love the most, you're kind of dealing with two losses at the same time. And then you're looking out for your children as well. That must have been very tough. Yeah, very tough. But in some ways, the children give you a reason to go on and a reason to lead. And, you know, as the title of this podcast indicates, I actually learned so much about leading from leading my children through the last seven years, almost seven years of our lives. In what ways did you learn about leadership? So in a, in a, I think before I thought more about leadership in, and I, I work as a defense contractor in a command and control kind of way, which is how we look at the U.S. military and all militaries around the globe. And what I really learned from leading them is a whole lot more listening, listening and, you know, taking people in and, and being alongside people as they're working their way through the messy middle of loss and then getting stronger using coping mechanisms and moving forward. So you're more accompanying people than leading people sometimes. And that's what I learned from the kids. In one of your newsletters, I noticed you had two diagrams. One was like the U shape of what grief and the process of grief should feel like. And the other one was the same sort of diagram, but just scribbles all over it, like what the actual experience was like as to what it's supposed to be like. So that scribbly, messy middle that you talk about, how does that affect your life? Um, What does it feel like? Yeah. And, and, and I would, you know, in my circumstance, you know, what the luminous does is we look at vibrant living through the law, through the aperture, through the lens of loss, but and my loss was the loss of my husband, but I like to think of it so much more broadly, divorces, loss of jobs, all those things. And you have that same sort of grieving, that messy grieving. And, and we're told in society, and, and one of my really big things is to kind of break societal norms. We're told in society when you go through a grief, it's this five stages of grief. It's very linear, but no, no time after loss is linear. Some days you're up, some days you're down. And I think the, one of the hardest things to accept about that is you can't control where your emotions are from day to day. And that's why that scribble diagram of where you, where, you know, you're zigzagging all over the place. So for me, a lot of, of what helped me cope was spending some alone time in the forest. You know, that was a really big thing for me. Um, Reading books where I could read about other people's experiences. So my experience didn't seem so weird. No, everyone's going through that same zigzaggy part. And then really surrounding myself with people to help me along the way. And that was something I didn't do before Mike died. I was a strong, independent woman. I can do everything myself. I can give you help, but you know, I don't really need to ask for help. And that was something that I really had to break my paradigm on and realize, no, I couldn't get by without help from my family, from friends, even some sometimes strangers, acquaintances, the whole world is out there to really support you during your loss. But we're so busy keeping everything close to the vest and not wanting to talk about it. Um, that I think that's a tragic mistake. And, I've, and I have really learned that in the last seven years. So instead of being strong and, you know, self-contained, you learned that by being a bit more vulnerable, yes. things were a little bit easier. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's, that was a real skill at, you know, I'm 55 now. So it took me, it took me a long time to kind of come up to that, but I lived this whole life being independent. And now I needed to, I needed to just realize with that breaking, I couldn't be that anymore, not just for myself, for my kids too. I needed more support for them um, as well. So that was a great lesson. You've talked about, you know, having those thoughts and you think, oh, I must ring. What was your husband's name? Mike, was it? Mike, yes. I must ring him. So what do you do now? Who do you reach out to when you go to pick up your phone and he's not there? I love such a beautiful question. And in the first few years, it was like, uh, 
nobody, right? I mean, like my kids were 11 and 13. I wasn't going to text them. Well, I just got in this argument at work today. Can you help me puzzle it through? But what gradually happened over time is each of my friends and some of my family members represent a certain sort of emotion in my life. When I'm feeling like I need to puzzle out a work problem, problem, I call my girlfriend, Luann. When I see something beautiful, just this weekend, I was up visiting my son. He goes to college in upstate New York. And I was actually writing the writing a post for the Luminous in my bed. And I look out my window and it's snowing, the first snow of the season. So I hop up, I take a video, and then I send it to my brother-in-law. So my sister's husband, he has helped me so much in the last seven years, like raise the kids. So now he's my go-to, oh, look at this beautiful thing. And 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 we share that back and forth. And, and in fact, he jokes around, he calls them my Sioux views, because I'm always sending him a picture of a sunset or, you know, or the snow or something beautiful. So gr- gradually over time, I've reached out and figured out what, how to fill what I call the Mike shaped hole. So, you know, Mike was such a huge presence in my life and different things fill that hole and it'll never be completely filled, but it's filled to a real richness now with a bunch of different people instead of one human being. And did you ever feel guilty, particularly when you started off that, you know, sharing that, you know, am I really allowed to do this? You know, is this right? Is it too early? How did you how did you start sharing those moments, particularly with your brother in law? You know, when is it okay to say, actually, life is good, even though though there's this huge hole in my heart? How did I make it bigger? How did you start that? It's a great point, because I think people when people see you thriving, they're like, well, maybe she didn't really love her husband that much, because she's doing quite well, right? And, And so, you know, people will judge you for how well you're thriving. But at the same time, At the heart of it, I know my husband would want me and the kids to live the best life we can. And in fact, I, um, and in one of the Luminous posts and and in a video I did for the Wall Street Journal, I talk about a letter that I found that Mike wrote way long ago, way before he died. And he just happens to say in the letter, um, you know, it was just a very heartfelt letter. And he says, if anything were to happen to me, I would want you and the kids to live your lives fully and happily. You deserve that. So even though I was, you know, knowing that if I was thriving and sharing a lot, people might judge me in the end, I was honoring Mike. There's nothing that honors our loved ones, our lost loved ones, like our ability to move through these terrible times of grief and move on with their, with our lives. They would want that for us. And I know that a hundred percent. And that's such a driving force for me. So when I started to write The Luminist, I was a little bit Oh, like I'm sharing a lot of really deep things. This is pretty vulnerable. And I wasn't, I wasn't worried about the vulnerable part. I was worried about making sure I honored Mike. And over time that when I get the feedback from people who say, oh my gosh, like I think about that, I feel like I know Mike, I'm getting like that ancillary benefit of Mike living on in people. So I had to kind of get over those fears at first, but now how I feel about it now is he would want me to thrive and he lives on the more I share. Wasn't that lovely to get that letter? It's like a hug from the past reaching through time. So right. It was just a beautiful thing. And I found it in the first year, like about maybe about six months after he died. I just found I was looking through some cards and we were big card and letter writers. He was he traveled a lot. So we would leave cards. And when I when I found that letter, I remember I was sitting out on my back porch by myself and I was like, oh, because I also really believe in the mystery of life that you don't have to be able to explain everything why this letter 
re-shows up at a time when I need it. I think that that's another thing that makes life kind of tingly and shimmery, that we just don't know the answer to everything. Yeah, there's a little magic in there. One thing you talk about a lot is the resilience experiment. If you can learn from failure without self-judgment, we're very good at self-judgment, aren't we? (laughs) How do you get over that? (laughs) Yeah, we're professionals at self-judgment. I think One of the things that I benefited from in terms of resilience in the early days was just like, I had to keep trying things to see what would work. I I, I didn't have a choice, right, to to get better, to move out of the messy middle into back into a position of strength to continue leading my little family. Uh, And I think what I realized over time is there is nothing more empowering than surviving, right? And that is we never look back at all the things we've survived and kind of pat ourselves on the back. Oh my gosh, look at all you've been through. And when I think about the really hard times in my life, even when Mike was still alive, some really hard things that I went through, there was a little building of resilience in each of those things. And when the really bad thing happened, when Mike died, of course, it's like a year or two and you're still, you know, your brain is like not quite functioning, but then you kind of come out of it and you're like, oh no, I see the world in a different way. And I survived that. So resilience to me is like, it's not something that you're born with. It's something that builds up over time because you have endured. You have been through different things and you've tried and you've gotten your toolkit out and you're like, okay, let me try this. Let me try that. Oh, that didn't work. I'm putting it aside. And coping mechanisms, they're neither good or bad. They're just what's right in the context of the moment. So I tried a bunch of different things. Half of them worked, half of them didn't. And I kept putting one foot in front of the other. So much so that I came to a point in time, I looked in the rear view mirror and I was like, oh my gosh, I have come so far. That to me is what resilience is. It's recognizing what's already in us because we have endured. Did you ever have days where you just couldn't put one foot in front of the other? You bet. <laughs> Absolutely. And and arguably, even seven years later, there are still days like that. I like to call those ditch days where you're you're kind of in the ditch, in the big pothole. And in the first couple of years, a ditch day would take three or four days. Like I would feel like really, you know, like sort of metaphorically, you'd feel like you're in the ditch and you're up to your neck and you can't even push your way out of the ditch. But as time went on, I would have ditch days that were a little bit shallower. Like maybe they would last two days instead of one day. And even I find myself approaching the seventh anniversary of Mike's death. And over the weekend, I had a day where, you know, it was just a tear filled, tear filled day. And that's natural. Like, But what I've also gained in, in addition to knowing this resilience part of me, I've also gained one of my favorite things to say, which is a Rilke quote, no feeling is final, right? You're going to feel that way. And you're going to ride the wave and work through it. You're not going to push back against it like you're holding the door to the monster, right? You're going to let it flow through you. You're going to let your tears come. You're going to let your sadness come. And then it's going to come back to an equilibrium. And that's, I have a lot of faith in that now too. So I still have ditch days and I had them way more early on and they lasted longer. And the ones I have now, I like to say I'm sort of knee deep in the ditch. I can step out, but it's going to take me a minute or two to do that or a day. I heard someone once describe that as like clouds, that they come along, but they also go away as well. (laughs) They just come along and they drift and they're awful when it's lashing rain down on top of you, but they do pass and you have sunny days like you have there today. You were saying as well that we've probably lost some of our old skills that we used to have in coping with death as part of the life circle of life. 
um, and that old traditions that people have and forgotten. And maybe fear has got in the way, particularly since COVID, that it was so awful and people lost people who were alone when they died. And there were horrendous circumstances. And we're looking at wars and horrific things on our TVs every night. It's just too awful. Um, but, you know, how do we integrate old traditions to help us through what have we lost and what can we reignite to help us? Yeah, beautiful. It's a beautiful question. Ritual. Ritual is so important, right? We, uh, you know, I remember I grew up in rural Western Pennsylvania in steel country uh, and, and where I grew up, if anybody that was in our orbit passed away, we would all go to the funeral. You didn't have to know the person personally. You just knew you knew the neighbor's neighbor, et cetera. And that was a gathering and that was a showing of respect and a showing of companionship through these hard times. It was funny when when Mike died, I had a few people tell me, well, you know, I figured there was just a lot of people at the funeral and you didn't, you know, you didn't need an extra person. And I was, and I was like, really? And, and, you know, I can be a little bit bold in my communication. And, and I was just kind of like, okay, so like your discomfort about coming to the funeral was the higher priority over your consolation of me and my family. And sometimes we have to be called out for the ways that our fear, and I, and I do genuinely believe it's fear. We just have to question what's going on in our own mind that we would not be wanting to lean in and comfort others. The fear is real. And I'm not saying people shouldn't feel that. And there's this thing, you're like, am I, am I afraid of dying myself? And therefore coming to a funeral makes me more afraid. But I think we have to find ways to reach out and console each other and prioritize that. So coming to funerals is, is just one part of it. I also get a lot of friends who acknowledge Mike's the anniversary of Mike's death, just a little text or a note. And that's something that says, wow, like all these years, people are still thinking about me and putting themselves out there and caring for me. And, and all the, you know, the rituals around when someone dies, you bring, you know, you bring a lasagna, you bring a quiche. People, that makes an inordinate amount of difference. People don't think that. And all you have to do is drop things off at the front porch. You don't even have to have a conversation. That That is just such a rich um, communication of caring. And then the last thing I'd say is, the cards and the letters and the notes that shared uh, Mike's life with me, because I didn't know work, Mike. I mean, we talked about work all the time at home. We were two, you know, MBAs and professionals, but the letters I got from his coworkers and his colleagues, um, the, his mentees, they were so rich because then I got to know Mike in a different way, how, you know, how, what work Mike was. And even something as, uh, Small is that 15 minutes spent on a consolation card or a letter. I still have those and we still, the kids and I still look through them today because that's, that will always be a piece of mic for us. So even a small ritual like that is just, it's so rich. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to bring up that whole thing about cards because I visited an older workmate um, there a couple of years ago and two years after his wife died, he still had all the cards up like they were Christmas uh -huh. cards. But he was wow. surrounded himself. But does there come a time when you kind of have to let go a little bit? Like, do you, I mean, when, this is not relevant to you, obviously, but uh, one of my favorite TV shows is about uh, people hoarding things. And I'm always amazed at things that people hoard and keep. Christmas decorations would be one because they remind them of happier times. Or, you know, a lot of men seem to hold on to technology, bits of video recorders. Oh, right. nobody's speakers and wires and yeah, things like, like I'm ah. looking around my own desk here as well, feeling a little guilty <laughs> on that one. But, you know, like, are there things that you don't ever want to let go of either? 
Yeah. I, and I would say here's here was my gradual process. And, and let me just do a little what we call in America PSA public service announcement. There is a great show called the um, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. And it is like these three Swedes who come to people's homes in circumstances like like my own, and they help them understand, you know, the things that are good to keep. So uh, I would just put that out as just a, it's a light. Oh my gosh. It's just, it's just a beautiful, beautiful show, you know, as opposed to when we watch hoarders, we're like, oh my God, but this, this Swedish, the gentle art of Swedish death cleaning is just spectacular. So when Mike died, uh, we had two closets, you know, I had my closet and he had his closet. So sometimes people are like, get that stuff out, you know, pack it up, give it to Goodwill or whatever. And I was like, no, like that doesn't feel right. So for two years, we left Mike's closet as Mike's closet because the children would sometimes when they were feeling super sad, they could go in that closet and sit with Mike's clothes, right? And I would have missed this terrible consolation action for them if I would have packed everything up right away. So then it came a time where we we moved house and we together, we picked the shirts that were, you know, had memories for us, a few belts. We put them in an airtight container and we put daddy's clothes on them. So we didn't take the whole closet with us. We took what was important. And whenever we want to kind of look through that, we have that bin. So that's a little thing when I think about things. But but also, like, as I'm talking with my hands, as we discuss, for a long time, I still wore my wedding ring. I still wear my engagement ring and my wedding ring because I just wasn't like, when Mike died, it was so sudden. It wasn't like I wasn't his wife anymore. So I I can't even tell you the exact day that I took my wedding ring off, but it was well into the second year um, after he died where I just felt over time, okay, this isn't, no, this doesn't represent me anymore. It's not who I am as I move forward. But I took the time I needed and didn't pay attention to any societal norms in figuring out what I wanted to keep and when I was willing to move on. So that's just two examples. Really, really interesting. I'm interested in the clothes thing because I sometimes think we have a very primitive instinct for smell. And yes. Smells bring back memories, particularly somebody's yeah. clothes, or, you know, on their person, you know, so that's. Yeah. And that's we really kept, kept his cologne bottle. So he had a couple of bottles of cologne that we still have to this day. Like Kendall, my daughter keeps one in her, in her vanity case and I keep one. And when I'm really missing Mike, I'll open the top of the cologne bottle and smell. Oh, and it's so it kind of fills me with that feeling of him. Another thing that you wrote about was exceeding your own expectations lessons from my grieving teenagers on empowerment. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, again, this is a societal norm, a taboo thing. You know, you're supposed to, when your husband dies, your life is over, right? And so are your kids' lives. And they're going to lead a life that's smaller for the rest of their life. And first of all, I just couldn't stand that narrative as if like, uh, you know, well, I, I knew Mike would never want that. And and second, like we're powerful people and they're a part of him. And that's just, I just, I couldn't cotton that. I just couldn't tolerate it. So one of the most important things that happened to me early on, like maybe this, the second day after Mike died is he and I had a shared good friend who lives in Cape Town, South Africa. Wayne is his name. And uh, Mike died in the morning and reaching Wayne, we, we were having time difference difficulties. So I talked to him sort of the day of the funeral, probably. And he said to me, Sue, you're not going to be able to see it right now, but things will be great again. We don't know how, but we know they will. And he knew me and he knew Mike. And just that someone would have the faith in us, me and the kids, that we were going to thrive again was so important. So he kind of laid the foundation there. And then I just would watch the kids 
as they evolve in dealing with their dad's loss. So one of the things, Ken, one of Kendall's famous things she said to me is, uh, and she was 11 when he died. So she, this was probably when she was 12 or 13. You know, pe- mom, people, when bad things happen to them, they're not going to know what to do, but I'm going to know what to do. Like she really absorbed that lesson. No, I survived the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. My beloved dad is gone, but I, and I will always have that gap and there will always be scratchy things around that, but I can live and be stronger. So watching them try out all their different coping mechanisms, pick different sets of friends, sometimes decide to tell people that their dad was dead, sometimes withhold that information. Again, this is a context-specific coping mechanism. They tried things that worked, they tried things that didn't, but now I just watch them and one is a one is a junior in college and one is a freshman in college and they are just launched into the world like, like a rocket ship. So they are my, you know, <laughs> they are what inspires me to know that we can all, like if children can do it, then why we adults, you know, why are we up in our heads about, about life after loss? No, they are the model. Sounds like you're an inspiring leader there with the, within your family as well. Tell me, you seem to be um, a big fan of nature because you talk about saying hi to the ranger and you can see you're surrounded yeah. by beautiful trees there in nature. Does nature kind of console and sustain you as well? Absolutely. So in the early days after Mike died, uh, I there was a beautiful national park up just a few miles away from my house. So you can go up and be in nature and walk in the trees and cry and no one can see you and no one's judging you. Right. And then you're you're surrounded, you know, by all this beauty right when your life is the most broken. And I think one of the big things that helped me about being in nature is is just that. I could get out of my head and into observation mode. Look at the light coming through the trees. Oh, I want to touch that leaf. Oh, I'm, I'm going to hug that tree. That, that tree looks so good. So nature was really the first gateway to me, to my healing. And again, I think it's a mystical, mysterious thing why nature makes us feel that way. Um, but I would spend hours and hours and hours up in Great Falls, like all the kids were at school and they wanted to go to school. They wanted to be back in school feeling normal. In fact, Kendall said to me in the first couple of days, am I supposed to just stay home and sit around with all these sad grownups? No, thanks. Like I would like to go to school and run around on the playground. So they would be at school and I would go up in nature. And, and it's been so fundamental to me uh, when it was time for us to move out of our house where Mike died. I picked a lot with all these trees. And I, uh, when I gave the architect his, uh, his brief, I just said, I want a lot of light and I want a lot of trees. And that's, it's just a way of seeing beauty when the rest of your life is broken. And to me, nature is the exemplar of that. And also in a, in a certain way, you know, nature teaches us that we were meant to heal, like no matter what bad thing. And, and right now it's, it's, it's uh, all my leaves are off my trees here, or it would normally be like a wall of green. And there is a beauty to the leaves being off the trees. You see all the detail. It's like how when the tide goes out, you see all the shells. Like when when nature, when you lose the leaves, you see the beauty of the trunks. You see the cardinals hopping around. There, there's we we think that you know life is just should all be like rainbows and unicorns, but there is a lot of beauty underneath whenever loss happens. Nature teaches us that too. That's a great image for your next newsletter, I think. <laughs> Can you tell me what are your top five pearls of wisdom? Yeah, I love this question. So I, I, I had made some notes on this. So the first and foremost, don't believe everything you think. 
Like our brains are constantly, they're just trying to protect us. We have an evolutionary brain. We're always thinking, what does that person think of me? What if I do this thing? You don't have to believe your thoughts. They are actually are not you. They are something being generated by you. So don't believe everything you think. The second is no feeling is final. Like I shared with you that Rilke quote, it's very important to know however bad you feel right now, let's engage in some coping mechanisms. Let's spend some time with friends in nature, with your family, even watching a movie to zone out. That's perfectly good too. Um, so no feeling is final. My third is a big one. I am not thriving despite what happened to me. I am thriving because of what happened to me. So not despite because, and, and that's back to that point, there's nothing more empowering than surviving. I, I had a great life with my husband. He was amazing. We would have lived a wonderful life together, but I see life differently now because I was broken and that brokenness allowed me to see differently, which is beautiful. Um, my fourth pearl of wisdom is something I call, and this is a business related one. I call it my Michael Dixon rule. So I worked at IBM before I worked at this current defense contractor and, you know, very global. And we were having a gentleman join our team from Australia, Michael Dixon. And everybody who knew Michael Dixon, I'd never met him. They were like, you know, he's just kind of rough and gruff. And I don't know if he's going to be a good member of the team. And I was like, oh my God, this Michael Dixon's going to come on the team. It's going to be, you know, terrible. He comes on the team and I adore him. And he ends up being like one of my best friends and best work colleagues. So it's very important at work to not let other people influence you about how you're going to engage with a human being. We are also individual. Just because Michael Dixon doesn't get along with someone else doesn't mean Michael Dixon's not going to get along with me. As long as I'm open, open to people and that interactions, so this is one of my favorites. And then number five, the last one is a, a saying, and I, I, I believe you, you all have it um, as well. It's like these things happen. Right? We want to believe that loss happens to somebody else. We want to believe that the tough times happen to somebody else. And so when they happen to us, we're so we're so shocked. Wait a second. You know, no, I, I, you know, loss happens to other people, death, loss of jobs, divorces, et cetera. No, these things happen. And the more we acknowledge that, the more we're constantly building a position of self-reflection and of strength and community for when those times come, not if. Super, super, absolutely super. Tell me financial advice. What's the best bit of financial advice you ever got? This is such a great question. I was so happy to see it. Uh, um, my, I come from a scarcity mentality where money is concerned. So uh, that was like, that kind of ruled the day. Like I didn't want to spend any money. I wanted to be really careful with my money. Uh, my, you know, my mom, um, you know, she, she kind of taught me how to, how to work with like a small amount of money. My grandma was twice widowed and she worked at the deli counter at the grocery store and, and made it just fine and lived a happy life. But I had to pivot from that scarcity mentality to, to say, it's okay to spend within your means. Like, don't be afraid of spending within your means. That's the scarcity mentality makes you just want to hoard everything. But no, you have, you know, we, we make a good livings and spending within our means with planning and deliberateness is a gem. Like, so don't let scarcity mentality rule your life. That's my financial one. Sustainability, so important for us, particularly with climate change and everything. Is it important to you being sustainable in your life choices? And what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah, my um, so my favorite thing here is there's a great guy on Substack. He has a he has a, a newsletter called Fewer Better things. So, you know, why are we investing in, in 
a whole bunch of things when we can have fewer, better things. And in fact, uh, for this conversation today, I, I wore these, I've had this pair of pants that I wear all the time. I've had it for 10 years. And, you know, luckily it's stretchy. So it worked during COVID whenever we all expanded and contracted uh, or just expanded. <laughs> and, and, but I realized like, I don't need to be out there hunting for the best new pair of pants. I've got this pair of pants that I wear all the time, like, you know, five out of seven days a week as they go through the wash. But that kind of thing, thinking about our clothing and the things that we're buying, um, you know, to have fewer, better things. Yeah. I have a pair of Lululemons that I just wear all the time. Shocking. <laughs> Yes. It cost me a fortune at the time, but I must have them 10 years now. It's great. <laughs> right. Your ROI is very good on those. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Um, and before we finish up, your go-to song or piece of yeah. music. So I, I can't decide if I'm happy or sad that the Barbie movie um, has used this song, but Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls has been my go-to song from, like, I remember playing that song on the way uh, on the way to the church on my wedding day in 1998, Closer to Fine, right? The less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to fine. And that you know, feeds into sort of that mystery of life. So that is my favorite. That's my go-to. Oh, that sounds amazing. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I've learned so much uh, during the podcast. And I know our, our listeners will listen and enjoy everything you've had to share, too. Do you want to tell me or tell the listeners how to find out more about your newsletter? Yeah, that would be great. Thank you, Angie. So they can just find me at theluminist.org. Um, and there's a link to the newsletter there. Or you can also go on Substack, Substack and just search for The Luminist. Great stuff. I love your emblem, which is like a lighthouse with a beacon. Tell me a little bit about that before we go. Yeah, I went to a fantastic um, ideas festival in Wales, not this summer, but the summer before called the Do Lectures, D-O. Um, and, and it's a, and people should check out that website. There are a bunch of really creative, cool people who are on missions. Like I'm on a mission to change the conversation around loss. And I met this amazing guy who runs a design firm in London and his name was Paul and we just clicked and it was great. And so whenever I was thinking about starting the luminous, I said to Paul, Hey, can, do you think you can help me with this logo? I'm thinking, you know, and, uh, you know, a light shining a light on things that are normally in the dark. And he and his team put together that logo for me. So another piece of connection that I wouldn't have had, you know, prior to Mike's death, that filling the hole with a person as beautiful as Paul who helped me. Sue, thank you so much for that and uh, for all your, your wisdom and the best of luck with The Luminist. All right. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Take care. My thanks to Sue Deagle, this week's guest on the Women in Leadership podcast. Isn't she inspirational? If you enjoyed the conversation, please like and share and follow us on the Women in Leadership podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a website, womeninleadership.ie, where you can contact us with your thoughts and guest suggestions. We also love to hear about your experiences and particularly about any jaw-dropping comments you may have been on the receiving end of. You know, those sexist or misogynistic things that are said unconsciously or even consciously and that need to stop. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti and all the team here on the Women in Leadership podcast, goodbye and take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.